it's a big deal when I feel like I can't bring some of my cultural experience into a context that might have implications for what kind of knowledge can be communicated. Translators are obsessed with the problem of being faithful, and the problem is faithful to what? When we all read a text, we all read it slightly differently. We would like to engage the participants in our theater in something that can take them further than they would normally be able to go, and therefore demonstrate to the audience that we can all go farther than where we're normally going. Those are some of the voices you'll hear on today's In Contrast. We'll talk about the art of translation with Tim Parks, the magic of theater with Stacy Klein and Matthew Glassman from Double Edge Theater, and discovering your voice in public radio with Jerry Kumanyika. That's coming up right after the news. Welcome to In Contrast. I'm Ilan Stavans. Today we'll explore the art of translating with Tim Parks, discovering your voice and the whiteness of public radio with Jerry Kumanyika. And we'll hear from two of the principals responsible for the magical productions of Double Edge Theater in Ashfield. Tim Parks is a novelist and translator. Born in England, he's lived in Italy since 1981. He's the author of novels and works of nonfiction and is a regular contributor to the New York and London Review of Books. Parks has also translated the works of Machiavelli, Moravia, Calvino, Calasso, and Leopardi. His book, Translating Style, is considered a classic. Tim Parks, welcome to In Contrast. Let me start with a famous sentence in the Italian language, traduttore, traditore. Translators are traitors. Uh-huh. The Italians have that statement. Is it true? Well, like, like all these things, it's, it's sort of half true. I actually think it's one of the most annoying things that, that gets always wheeled out. So I, I don't mean that necessarily as a criticism here. One of the whole problems of translation is, is simply that one, one separates content from linguistic context, from sound and syntax, and then reconstructs it. So that you have the idea that in language content and sound can be separated, whereas our experience of them in our own language is the same. And of course, notoriously, when you put that content in different clothes and different sounds, it it sounds different. And very often, in order to be faithful to a level of fluency or to a certain ease or even to a certain difficulty, changes are going to happen. Like just appearing in the same clothes in a different room or like moving the Tower of Pisa to New York, it really wouldn't feel like the Tower of Pisa in New York, would it? So inevitably, things change. That is not betrayal. I think actually translators are obsessed as a rule with with the problem of being faithful. And, And of course, that's why we have that saying, because that's what we expect of a translator is faithfulness. So let's delve into that concept of faithfulness, the degree to which a translator can or should be faithful in order to convey in the translated work what is presented in the original. I have a good friend who's a translator himself who says that translations always oscillate between being beautiful and being faithful. And if they are faithful, they are not beautiful. And if they are beautiful, they are not faithful. What is your view? I think it's a very limited and superficial way of looking at the question. It is actually what Dryden said. So let's talk about faithfulness. That The problem is faithful to what at the beginning? When we all read a text, we all read it slightly differently. Somebody who, for example, knows the Italian medieval period very well will read Dante with an intensity and with an awareness of context that somebody who knows modern Italian but not that period will not know. And so faithfulness 
will depend very largely there on on what I'm being faithful to. It's also clear that there's been a change in what is the medium in which I am being faithful. For example, if we go back to Pope and Dryden or, or the translations generally in, in Europe in the 17 and 1800s, and really right up to the early 20th century, there was a sense that when you translate something, you are taking something you probably have a great respect for and love and trying to reconstruct it very much in, in your own literature, trying to make it part of your own literature. So Pope's Homer is, is in heroic couplets, which, of course, Homer, Homer was not. Now, that has radically changed now. That was a different form of faithfulness. This is faithfulness to how Homer would be written today, which, of course, we don't do anymore. Now we, we have more an idea of, as it were, an international community of texts where we are simply making the text available in our language but not really seeking to feed our own national literature with this text. So that has changed hugely. And faithfulness is, is just a hugely complex problem. On the other hand, there are clearly translations that are occasionally more faithful and just writing more or less what was written in the original and other translations that don't do that. The question of making a writer sound, a, a writer from the past that is a classic, sound the way that writer could sound in <laughs> the guest language in a similar period. I am imagining, just for the purposes of this conversation, somebody wanting to translate Shakespeare into Spanish using words today that were employed in 1605 and not after 1605 in order to recreate linguistically the historical context of that. But that would be kind of an anachronism. It would be absurd. You want to bring something from the past, say Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet, into the present, modernize it? When we read Hamlet today, we are aware of all the archaisms in the text. There are many parts of the text that we probably don't understand as we should, so we're already translating it for ourselves. I've translated two old writers, as it were, Machiavelli from the 16th century and Leopardi from the 19th century. Now, if I had wanted to put Machiavelli in the kind of English that was being written at the time, I could have chosen lexically, I hope, maybe, after a lot of research, but I could certainly never have chosen syntactically and in terms of rhetorical flourish, because, I'm, you know, who can do that? So what woman is simply trying to do is to tune in as much as you can to what Machiavelli's doing. Machiavelli's whole vocation is to be clear, to say things clearly, simply, even brutally if necessary, but to say them directly without ambiguity, so it's not a literary text in that sense. And so in a certain sense, modern English is a language that might have been okay for Machiavelli in the sense that modern English uh, has a certain vocation for that kind of clarity. On, at the same time, you don't want to introduce expressions that even to people living today feel like they're invented yesterday. So you seek for a slightly neutral vocabulary that, that's not going to be out of date in 10 years' time. That's actually quite a tricky process, but I think it's, it's quite important translating older texts to at least give the translation a shelf life of maybe 20, 30 years mm -hmm. rather than... It's very different, obviously, based on what you have been describing, an effort of translating an old text, classic, and one that is contemporary or almost contemporary, where the author is alive. 
to what extent, even without reaching out to the author, the presence of that individual as a life is already on your shoulder as a police or as an entity that makes you less free Hmm. in the endeavor that you have set yourself. Let's talk a little bit about translation politics to move into that. When an American author is, is translated into Italian, it may not be absolutely crucial to his career. When an Italian author is translated into English, it is the stepping stone to becoming a, an international literary text. And the Italian writer will be extremely anxious that the English translation is good. So you generally have people who are more anxious than you would have the other way around. You also have a situation where, again, although few Americans might know Italian or might know German, most Italian authors will have some working knowledge of English, and so they will be looking over your shoulder. I think this is part of what I said before, that we're now no longer appropriating the text in good faith and moving it into our culture in quite the same way as we did uh, 100 years ago because it's immediately available to everyone to check. Even electronically, somebody can just get online and look at the original, look at my translation. As for the author, a lot, a lot depends on who it is. Moravia, when I translated Moravia, just, just wasn't interested. He was already very old. Same with Calvino, and then the next Calvino I did was shortly after his death anyway, but it didn't really change anything. As far, as far as my translation was concerned. Instead, Calasso was hyper aware of the need to get a good translation for, for his work, and the text had all kinds of technical problems to do with references to the classical world and, and so on. But Calasso knows that he doesn't know English well enough to bother me about the style too much, so he was just on my back about semantically where I wasn't absolutely in line with what he was saying. And that was actually fine. I liked that because it meant I've got somebody covering my back. Is it possible to do a translation of a novel and begin the effort without having read the book completely, knowing that this book has a certain reputation already, but you haven't read it, in order to keep, and I'm here really protecting this aspect, the freshness of the first reader? Yeah, this is uh, an old chestnut, isn't it? And a very interesting <laughs> one. On the one hand, let me say that I think there's really not enough awareness on the part of translators of the kind of literary animal they're dealing with a lot of the time. It's particularly a problem when you have a new author who doesn't have a big name, but might actually be a terribly serious and interesting author and might be camouflaged as, as something that he isn't. I think a translator certainly has a duty to get into a book before translating it and to really read enough of it to have reflected on what kind of animal it is. Like I wouldn't want to start translating a first page without having read at least 20. And, but honestly, I think with most authors, if you've read 20 pages with intensity and really looked at them, then you do know what kind of animal you're looking at. And as you say, one of the good things about that is that when you sit down there for the 120th morning, you say, hey, this piece is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that's important is to read, rather than read the whole book through, is to read four or five pages ahead of where you are. So there's nothing that's going to kind of surprise you in those next pages and make you have to change your mind mm -hmm. about what you're doing. Here. What happens when one comes across a section in a novel or in an essay or in a poem 
where you recognize that clearly there is a mistake. Does the translator have the right to correct a mistake or should the translator replicate that mistake in the translation because there is a tyranny of the original and it should replicate exactly what that original is? I would say there are probably hundreds of situations that are rather different here. For, for example, I, I write novels myself and of all the, the translators who translate my novels, the Dutch translator is a completely obsessive lady and she always finds mistakes in my text and she always writes to me and I would say, yeah, correct them, correct them, and now I'll correct them in the English. I say somebody sat down when he was already sitting down. You know, I give the date wrong. I get the wrong saint in describing a church or something. Like All these things. Obviously, if you have the author alive, you just write to him via his publishers. It gets a little bit more tricky when you get back to somebody like Machiavelli. You wouldn't want to correct Machiavelli's classical history because those were the examples he was building on. And if perhaps he didn't know that he was mistaken and we now know that... Why would you change that? But in a text like that, which usually will have a sort of scholastic apparatus, you can throw in a footnote if you want. Recently, in reading some of your essays and blogs, I came across a meditation on the Jabberwocky that you published in the New York Review of Books, in which you compare various translations to the original. And you talk in particular about the Jabberwocky a piece of writing that is so inventive, so creative, that it poses a unique challenge, maybe an impossible challenge for the translator. One of the things that makes writing exciting is when you're moving your eye across a sentence expecting one thing, the thing that everybody would have said, the standard collocation, he was wide awake, he was fast asleep, whatever, and then there's a different word. So the excitement there is the distance between what I expected and what I get. And what I expected is to do with my own linguistic context, and that it might be very difficult to replicate that. Let, let me give you an example. D.H. Lawrence says a moment after Gudrun and Gerald make love in Women in Love, where uh, Gudrun's lying awake, it's been a bad experience for her, she says, it says, she was destroyed into perfect consciousness. What you don't put into after destroyed. And consciousness is not usually seen as a result of destruction, as a result of something negative. And perfect doesn't usually go before things that are negative. And so you have a little animal that's being created that's terribly difficult, where you could imagine that you have a sort of English model where you say turned into or transformed into, and you've dropped a different verb in there. And do you have that model in Italian? No, you don't. And in fact, I've looked at that sentence in many languages, and usually it's just the problem is dropped, and they say, she was destroyed, she felt terribly awake, or, or something like that. Uh, so, so it's the problem of the relationship between a, what a reader expects, the, the linguistic context, and then what, what they get. So if we read the Jabberwock, thinking of what you expect, you start with twas, and we all immediately expect the standard, you know, 19th century poem, twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the momraths outgrave. And, and you say, well, wait a minute, you know, this is like looking at a piece of Victorian poetry through a distorting mirror where we don't actually know what any of the words mean, but they sound right, like the right words. And also the rhythm is so confident. It sounds like it should mean something. 
And you begin to ask yourself, well, maybe all poems are like that, that they just kind of bounce along rhythmically and it doesn't really matter what they say, that maybe the meaning is just the feeling of... Actually, I think, I, I think it's actually quite translatable in a way because since the words don't mean anything, we are not obliged to find a correspondence to them. What we're obliged to find a correspondence to is, is the literary model that's and, being used. And the music. And the music. But, the but we can do that precisely because we don't have, have to be faithful to anything. So we, we can actually invent words that sound good. Yeah. But the problem is, if that poem is not a nonsense poem, obviously we're in difficulty. And the D.H. Lawrence is an even bigger problem because D.H. Lawrence does that, plays that kind of trick once a paragraph. And so what you're constantly getting in a translation is a little bit more what you expected. And the problem is, very often when you get what you didn't expect, it doesn't have the felicity that the other text had. Well, it's been a, an enormous pleasure to have you in the show. Thanks for being in contrast. Thanks. Thanks very much. It was fun. We'll be back after this break. I'm Ilan Stavans. This is In Contrast from New England Public Radio. I've seen true genius too often elude the meaningless appreciation of this mediocre nation. A further minus repetition of empty words without tradition turn original verbs into submission. I smell blissful ignorance addiction, but I guess I wouldn't be right if I said the blood was like a baby pipe. There ain't gonna be no revolution tonight. Half my warriors as high as a kite lost and they lost all they pipe. And I've tasted the bitter tragedy of lives wasted and men who glimpse the darkness inside. That's our guest, Chanjarai Kumanjika. He is an activist, hip-hop artist, journalist, and assistant professor of popular culture at Clemson University. Last summer, while attending a public radio workshop, our guest realized that he wasn't using his natural voice, that of an African-American man whose voice was shaped by black culture and oratory, but rather speaking like he imagined public radio should sound like a style of speaking consistent with the culturally dominant white style of speech and narration. He recently published a controversial paper on the color of voice that is available on transom.org. Chanjarai Kumanjika, welcome to In Contrast. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So let me start by asking you, what was this voice that you imagined? Well, Again, I was listening to podcasts like This American Life, you know, and uh, 99% Invisible. I had been listening to Serial. And so those voices aren't all the same. And then, of course, there's nationally shows like All Things Considered or Morning Edition. And so I was trying to kind of find some medium between those. That's what I was hearing. And I'm just putting the label whiteness on that. It's not all about the skin color or phenotype of the person who's speaking but the similarity that I think we all know what I'm talking about. It has to do with region, class, and, uh, you know, race and ethnicity, too. Now, linguists talk about code switching, and you often use this term. How do you understand it? What is code switching? Code switching is this idea that we all kind of perform and speak language differently in different contexts. And I think it's something that everyone does. But, you know, in linguistics, I think it really started with looking at people who are bilingual and multilingual, mm -hmm. really people who are speaking Spanish, English as a second language. And so that kind of reveals that this issue has to do with race and ethnicity. So some people just say, well, everybody kind of code switches. And I'm like, true, but there's different layers to it when we're talking about nationality and race. 
I would say, though, that all of us are actually multilingual speakers, even mm. when only speaking one language, that mm. we know when to use the English language in a particular style with a particular group. And then we know how to switch it to another type of style with another group. And in some ways, even we're programmed for that. I agree. But I think that's a really good point. There is an internal knowledge, but I think that sense of internal knowledge, the way that we internalize when it's right to speak, this is what I want to make into a political issue, right? Because one thing I know is that some of the people I know who are part of dominant groups, men, white men, they don't have the same rules about when they have to change their way of speaking, right? To the same extent. It's a big deal when I feel like I can't bring some of my cultural experience into a context that might have implications for what kind of knowledge can be communicated, right? So if I just decide I'm going to speak in this way that, again, I'm calling white, not trying to oversimplify whiteness. If I rule out these other ways in all of these different contexts, what are we missing out on? At the same time, you could turn the topic upside down and say that minorities, by having this code-switching strategy, have something a kind of advantage above or beyond what the mainstream, the establishment has. And there could even be a kind of envy by the establishment of those of us who can code switch, that we see the world in multiple ways and not in a flat, straightforward fashion. That's right. You know, W.B. Du Bois talks about this double consciousness, right? And I think it might even be more than double consciousness that you have. And so I think there's definitely an advantage. We can look at it that way. But the question is, does the United States really want to benefit from that wisdom? Is that wisdom that you're talking about, that other layer of insight, are there ways that that's actually blocked out of what the dominant American voices are going to be, causing the United States to be a so-called melting pot? But as long as everybody kind of plays their place, right? Like, yeah, we want you here so we can have the diverse people, you know, in the picture, but don't actually transform what my expectations and, and comfort zone is. Mm. Because I heard one of the languages people use and some of the critiques to my piece was radio has to work for people in all walks of life. But all walks of life means, you know, <laughs> it means kind of white people, yes. right? <laughs> So let's hear a clip of the two Chandrais, the two voices that you have, the two identities. Right. And uh, that will hopefully enable us to go farther into this discussion. John Towski can't shake the moment he lost a 50-pound white sea bass. John Towski can't shake the moment he lost a 50-pound white sea bass. At this point, with the reflections that you've engaged in, do you see yourself in both? Or now you see one that is being eclipsed and the other one that is coming to the fore? You see a kind of changing of, of skins using a, a metaphor here? <laughs> right. Such, such rich language you're, you're, <laughs> you're giving me to help describe this hard-to-get-at phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's right just to simply say one is fake and one is the real me. I don't, you know. But I do hear in the first one, me performing, doing a bad imitation of what I think a reporter or a podcaster is supposed to sound like. And in the other one, I'm, I feel I'm speaking in a voice that's more true to how I would just feel an empowered space narrating that story. You know, I was more relaxed when I did the other one. More authentic? I would say more authentic. I don't know. It's hard to say. 
that there's one <laughs> authenticity, right? I know I'm vulnerable when I say that. <laughs> Let's think of this from the perspective of immigrants. The United States is an immigrant nation, is a nation that depends on the relationship, the dynamic, the ecosystem of minorities, always testing the majority. And the journey of an immigrant is the journey of moving from the outskirts of society or from the bottom of the scale up or center stage. But if we saw it from the perspective of language and of accent and of voice, it would probably also be described as the journey of speaking another language or speaking with a heavy accent and slowly losing your accent. Entering the melting pot means being almost undistinguishable from everybody else, speaking like everybody else. And that is seen as success. Maybe that is what the whitening of minorities is all about in metaphorical terms. You become white not only because uh, you marry across ethnic groups, but also because whiteness is considered to be the color of entering the melting pot. Do you think that by your discussion of voices in the identities on public radio, we are witnessing a very deeply rooted transformation of what America is about, where the idea of success is now keep your accent, keep your voice, don't give it up. You can be in the mainstream and retain that quality. Well, I hope that that's what's happening. I think that that's what myself and other people who are taking up this issue have been struggling with. I mean, you talked about with immigrants. I mean, this is what I see. I see America's like, oh, yes, we want to have immigrants here in different industries. We want to have people here to make this thing. But then when the experience of different immigrants starts to really transform what people understand to be the core of American culture, there's a pushback. Mm -hmm. And you can see that pushback go to the NPR comments where people are like, no, this is just what it's supposed to be. And then, like, there's this issue that you said of success, right? Moving just into, like, the idea of a southern accent. I live in South Carolina. I know a lot of people who hide their Southern accent because they themselves feel it makes them look backwards. It makes them look backward in different ways. But to me, that's like colonial language. You know, what do you mean it looks backward? Backward to who? And all of that is part of whiteness, right? The way in which you have to hide your region. So I hope that conversation is happening, but I fear that we're more so in the beginning of it mm. than actually in the end. And I want to see it gain more momentum. It seems to me that accents are always fighting for space, and mm. so are voice styles. And the moment one becomes a dominant force, others want to take over that space. And it is inevitable, maybe that's part of what this tension of being in a multicultural, multilinguistic, multi-voice society is all about. Can you see a moment in which different styles, different voices will be accepted in the mainstream and still others will feel that those voices now don't represent everybody, that now there are other marginal groups that want to be equally represented in the middle. I think what you're saying is really doing justice to the complexity of this. There's always going to be this negotiation of who's represented, voice representation, different experiences. Here's what I think. I think that if you look at the context of today's media environment, there are many venues and channels and media that people can communicate in their own styles and communicate their own forms of cultural wisdom and, and experience and regional wisdom and gendered wisdom and all these kinds of things. So 
they kind of don't have to rely. If they're not being heard in one sense, in one mainstream forum, they can go to the other thousands of streams that exist. So I think we're in that moment, hmm. and that's already creating that, that pressure. But what I do think you see, this is kind of going a little bit off topic, but you know, we know the Southern Poverty Law Center talks about how when Obama was elected, you saw this resurgence of hate groups in 2008 from up to like from 800 to like you know 1,300 in the country. What this shows is that when people see that vision of America that they have, their comfort zone about what America is, right? This is people that if you asked them, if you walked up to them, they would say, oh, I'm colorblind, I love, they tell you about all their diverse friends. But there's a certain investment in one kind of America. So I feel in 2043, when those people are the minority, mm -hmm. as you point out, <laughs> they're probably going to be like beat up with conversations of diversity. Yeah, and displaced. Maybe. Displacement yeah. is a great word. Now, you're a teacher, too. And I wonder if I can take you out of your role here as a subversive voice within public radio mm -hmm. and imagine you in the classroom with a student whom you think needs to refine her or his voice in order to be able to become more successful. How does a teacher become sensible and sensitive toward the different voices of students without pushing them down and at the same time understand that there are certain doors in society that you probably need to open and that you have to keep them all? I would like to hear what your strategies as a teacher with students of diverse backgrounds are. There's three things it means. The first thing I'm going to do is teach that student that in order for you to navigate this society, you have to do what Paulo Freire said. You have to master the dominant syntax. Mm. And that's just real. I'm not preparing you if you don't do that. Then the second thing, I'm going to encourage them to learn how to critique that dominant syntax and to develop spaces in their life where they can speak in ways that feel more authentic to them and where they can express themselves that way, right? Like maybe if you're a radio announcer for a big station, maybe there's limits to how much you can push, but you can develop your own podcast and speak in another other kind of way. And then the third thing I'm going to do is cry because it has to be so complex <laughs> for the student that I, and that they have to face that and that not everybody has to face it in the same way. Which goes back to what you were saying about the double consciousness. The student needs to understand how to That's inhabit right. more than one world. That's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. I think of the critique that was done in the 1960s and 70s by African-American and then eventually by Latino and Asian writers that did not feel themselves represented on mainstream bookstores and felt that their books were always either located in a section of ethnic studies in, right. in bookstores or published as if they were anthropology or ethnography rather than as literature. And eventually you have some figures that make the crossover. But I remember a number of them saying that it's not a matter of changing exclusively the voices of the writers, that the editors need to change and that the administrators, that it's the publishers, mm. need to be transformed too. Are we talking here not only of what you hear on public radio, but of the actual power structure within that needs to be educated, that needs to start understanding things differently? No, you're absolutely right. It's, a, it's about powerful voices and, and change at the institutional level. To be honest, I'm impressed and surprised that you're bringing this up because in many of the interviews I did, we had a section of the conversation where we talked about that. 
and it was edited out because it's too messy. It's too complicated. Mm. You know, people don't know how to go back and, and attack it. But it's hard if you come in as a Latino journalist and and people are saying things that that even making mistakes that even I've said, which is, could you not pronounce your name with an accent? Mm. You know, and as Luis Clement corrected me and said, uh, this is not pronouncing my name with an accent. It's just pronouncing my name. Right. <laughs> <laughs> How much can you push? There has to be a top-down component, not to not to place power in that in that area, but there has to be some top-down. Yeah, I, I, I like your question. I'll just I'll just put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the final one. Imagine yourself in 20 years or 30 years working in public radio still. How different is going to be your voice then? And will the voice that you have now? feel connected to that or will you feel that as you age as you become more successful more accepted that there is going to be some sort of give in give up give away that is inevitably part of maturity what i hope will happen is i will have gained experience with my instrument i will have kind of paid the dues you know i haven't really paid dues really in radio the people have worked so hard in radio and i have so much respect for that So I hope to have accomplished that, and I hope that as part of that, I'll have mastered my craft, but also that I'll begin to back away a little bit. Both Audie Cornish and Glenn Washington have called attention to the need to, for us to also back away a little bit as hosts and, and learn how to really make it about the people I'm interviewing. My story right now is the story of this piece, so it's kind of taking center stage. But I think my story is not necessarily the main important story. What about people who are, you know, dealing with more marginal issues? And so I hope I'm get good at making my voice kind of blend in, using it to help give those other voices center stage. And other voices that come from different corners and different Different heads. corners, different regions, different sexual orientations, different ethnicities, you know, different uh, first language experiences, all of these things, genders. That's who it needs to be at the table. Thank you so much for coming to In Contrast. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for this really great, great uh, conversation about this issue. I'm Ilan Stavans. You're listening to In Contrast on New England Public Radio. In 1994, Double Edge Theatre moved from Boston to a farm in Ashfield, where they produced some of the most innovative and magical theatre in the region. Drawing upon classical literature, the visual arts, street theatre, and a variety of experimental traditions, they collaborate with theatre companies from around the world and offer training to an international group of students. Joining us is founder and artistic director Stacy Klein and Matthew Glassman, an actor, writer, and co-artistic director with the company. Welcome to the show. Double-Edge Theater has been described as very physical theater. Explain to me, how is it that you rehearse? How do you put the pieces together? In what way is the physicality an essential component of the type of theater that you make? Our theater, I believe, for the spectator and even for the performer, is a visceral theater. Many people in our field, when they think of physical theater, They think very specifically of, of forms like Comedia dell'arte and mime, uh, and even some forms of clown, which are incredible physical forms. So for me personally, I tend to shy a little bit away from thinking and calling double-edged physical theater, even though our approach and our training and our entry point is through the body. The methodology, which I learned as a student years ago from Stacy and also another colleague and mentor, Carlos Uriona, who I'm sure we'll talk about later. From my experience as a student and now as a, as a practitioner, 
Uh, it's about entering through the body, through the totality of the body as it connects to the imagination and to the self, accessing parts of ourselves that we don't access in a daily way to go beyond our physical limits and from there to establish imaginative worlds, archetypes and images and to access a heightened place of creativity. In turn, and hopefully ultimately for the audience and the spectator had to have an experience that's beyond the daily, beyond the, the mind, the visceral, thinking of it in its, in its origins as the organs, belly of, of emotion, instead of purely a cerebral experience. Stacey, I wonder if you can help the listeners understand what goes on just before a performance takes place. How does the group prepare? What kind of efforts are done? Well, I think that does relate to physicality, the body. We would call ourselves a training theater, and our training starts from a physical approach to allow the person who's training, whether it's an actor or a technician or anybody, to engage themselves in a way that's beyond the daily. So you walk in and you could maybe use your mind to engage yourself in a different way, but we prefer engaging in totality in a different way. So it's kind of like if you run a lot, people talk about a runner's high or any other kind of physical activity which really elevates someone's consciousness. So we are trying to elevate someone's energy, consciousness, imagination, yes, just physical experience beyond what people would normally do. So we like to say that we would like to engage the participants in our theater in something that can take them further than they would normally be able to go, and therefore demonstrate to the audience that we can all go farther than where we're normally going. Stacy, what is the role of theater in a diverse, pluralistic, hopefully democratic society like the one that we have? At a time when theater has been almost caged into being sheer entertainment, joy, where you go in and you forget immediately after you leave it. In my opinion, theater is the opposite of that. It should make you remember. It's about memory. It's about thought. It's about experience. It's obviously different than non-performing arts. Visual arts are incredible, but they wouldn't encompass a direct connection between the artist and the spectator. I think theater is the total art form. It engages the mind, the imagination, the emotion, and it also has those physical parts like dance does, and it has music. So it does have all these different things. It's not intended, I believe, to be hypnotic, but rather actually awaken energy and memory and a real dialogue between the spectators. In our theater, we always have conversation afterwards with the audience. It shouldn't ever be you go, you pay your ticket, you get entertained, and you leave. I totally agree with that. And I would also add an agreement to what Stacy was saying that You know, I think in the ancient sense of theater, it included dance. And really, all of these things go back to ceremony. 
And theater currently, and I think and, and historically, has always been the place where all of the art forms can come together in a unified way in a live experience. Now, I love movies. I love going to the movies. I love television. I love it all. But it's a different contract between spectators even. When you go to the theater and you're in a room full of strangers versus when you go to the movies and you're in a room full of strangers, I, I can't really be too specific or sophisticated in explaining that, but I know it's true. And I also know that's really the single place that you can have live music, the visual arts, the body, the physicality, all together in a living live experience. And I know that this has had an, a critical spiritual and social uh, utility in communities, in tribes, in groups. Unfortunately, we're very distant from that idea. That it's become more of the movie experience. As, as I think Stacy was saying, the lights turn down, you see the piece, the lights turn up, and you leave. And that's something that we really try to change. And I, I just want to say, I think theater performs that in a different way. And it operates on our seeing inward and our seeing outward. And mm. there's nothing really more vital than how we see. It informs all of our choices. One of the beauties of theater is that every performance is different. That difference depends on the audience. That difference depends on, on the emotional state in which the actors find themselves during the show. When does that performance work for you? And when doesn't it? When do you finish thinking, this wasn't the night for this show? And when do you say, all the stars converged? I wished it was always like this. I don't know that I've ever had that all the stars converged feeling. <laughs> I think rather it's the time when I give it up and it's not my performance, it's the actor's performance. And that's when I'm a spectator. I'm a spectator to their owning the experience, living the experience of the work. So my work is over every day when the actors start preparing for the performance and training for the performance. And then it starts again in the morning when we discuss the performance. For me, once we open the performance and I finish the details that I'm responsible for, the set, the lights, the specific details of the actions. It's not really my performance anymore to the actors really take it and they live it and it is a life. It's not like this was good, this was bad. It's more, it's an incredible life experience to be with that audience alive and changing every single day. What you're just talking about, Stacy, that ability to sort of let go and become a a spectator, for us, that happens years into the process. Years after the thing has started to be created, we're talking about work that's being born out of original work that's being created by the ensemble, that's being led by the group and being really led by Stacy, who's our eyes on the, and mind on the outside. Usually in theater, the director steps out once the performance premieres. So as an actor, to what extent is one night different from any other night? When does it feel that things are working or that same emotion of, well, things are not working tonight in the same way? I am super nervous before every single performance. I know that there's a chemical thing happening. I know that there's adrenaline that's taking over. And I have to sort of jump in and let myself become like bamboo on a river. I never feel any performance to be the same as the night before. They, each one is different. 
And that's why having Stacy on the outside, we all really depend on her seeing and her connection to us because we're working in a laboratory fashion over several years, making this work it keeps changing as we perform it day to day. We keep working. The group as an ensemble really becomes an organism, and you feel that. I want to hear about shaping the summer spectacle for this year, 2015. I understand that it's going to be called Once a Blue Moon, and it is drawing upon magical realism, Latin American music and dance, and the paintings of Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. How does a spectacle like this come together? When do the influences stop being obvious and present and have wings in the, mm. in the piece, acquires its own creativity? Double Edge does two different types of performances. One is our indoor work, which we make over a long period of time, several years in its research and development. And then it, we perform it in our barn in Western Massachusetts at the Farm Center. And then we take it on tour to major performing arts centers and cities and towns here and also overseas. That's our indoor work. But every summer, for the last 13 years now, Double Edge has been creating what we call an indoor-outdoor traveling performance spectacle, which, as you said in your introduction, utilizes lots of different methodologies. Street theater, puppetry, carnival, Mardi Gras, and elements of flying. It's really heavily influenced by Carlos's work in Argentina, but also Stacy's physical training and very large, lush sense of imagery. So you put these things together, and this is the sort of the, the seed of the work. And we work very closely with lots of international artists, as Stacy mentioned, but also lots of local artists, painters, craftspeople, tradesmen and women. It's a big community collaboration. And for the spectators, they're traveling en masse from scene to scene in very unconventional locations. A silo, a stream, a garden, actors are on the roofs, flying out of trees and it ends under the stars in a pasture or by a pond. It's a transformative and magical experience that really, truly utilizes all of the art forms. This summer, it's, it's the first time we're not using a classic story or myth. Our Chagall cycle, the Odyssey, Chagall's lithographs of the Odyssey, performance called Shahrazad, which took from A Thousand One Nights and Chagall's illustrations and earlier Don Quixote, pre-existing texts. This summer, it's an original piece using a lot of these great influences. Isabella Allende and Marquez are a couple of literary influences and Octavio Paz. And it's, it's interesting because parades and Mardi Gras are large and they have a story in them that exists sometimes just for a block or just sometimes for the length that you see in motion. You can have a very small, intimate story that is existing in some large type of spectacle. And this work is really dealing with that paradox of memory, of time, of the personal, inside of history, which can be large, inside of parade and spectacle. The people who are working, the local artists that are making it with us, they're all part of the process of the performance. So in that sense, it is like a parade where you're participating. This is definitely a participatory performance, although the audience doesn't have to do anything to participate. The fact that they're there and engaged with us is the participation. I wanted to explain, however, the title, because I don't want to be enigmatic about this. Once a this. blue moon. Once a blue moon. A blue moon is when there's two full moons in one month, and it, it's a rare occurrence which is happening this July. 
And that's when we're opening a blue moon. And I, I love that idea that we're having two full moons when we're opening because when there's a full moon during our performance, it's incredibly beautiful because the scenes are right under that full moon and the light is just extraordinary. It's not something you could ever get. So we're very excited about that. It hasn't happened for years. So we decided even to name it after that. In this short time that we have left, I want to ask you to imagine just for a second how the world would be if theater was not one of its components. The question is, how is the world at this point in an age where destruction seems so much more available to all of us than creation? We have so many issues of violence and of violence to our planet and many, many very important things. And for me, the main issue is why aren't we using all of that brilliance to create instead of to participate in those destruction things. And my way of creating is through theater, obviously. There's many, many ways of being creative. But I also think that as a culture, we can use theater and things like that to all create together, because that is of the imagination, where we get to imagine what can be? What is our potential? What? How can we face challenges together? Those are all things that we can do with a living culture. It's been an enormous pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Ilan. Thank you. To hear a podcast of this program and all our interviews, visit us online at nepr.net. A young friend of mine says that she reads books in order to think and watches movies for the opposite reason, to numb the mind. These types of dichotomies are always extreme. Is the world ever that simple? Aren't there books we love because they are sheer entertainment and films that transport us to other realities? Yet what I like about my friend's point, maybe in spite of her own intention, is that art always does something to us. It either makes us more alert, aware of the issues that are urgent, the issues that define us, or it alienates us from our own condition. In democracy, where every mind counts, that either-or is essential. We need art to make us full citizens. But full citizens aren't full all the time. They think and they dream, and then they take a break, and then they think again. In order to be attentive, we need to have occasions in which we are distracted and wander around. Art is the glue that makes us a community. And there are all sorts of arts that enable us to thrive by making us think, but also by making us forget. Full citizenship in a democracy is about recognizing who and where we are, but also by allowing us to ignore that who and where. Or better yet, by making us see things from different perspectives. My young friend's comments remind me how we are when we think or when we choose not to. Art pushes that either or on us. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio. 
We've had technical support from Kathleen O'Keefe and Cara Foster. Our executive producer is John Vossi. I'm Milan Stavans. Thank you for listening.